podcasting, the remarkably crowded frontier. These are the conversations of two brothers and their mom. Their 13-episode mission to explore strange old movies, to seek out new bits and new jokes, to boldly go where no mom has gone before. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Where No Mom Has Gone Before, a Night Shift Radio original. We are reviewing Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I'm Captain Casey Ryan. Joined with me, as always, is my commander, Colin Ryan. Hello. And Admiral on the Bridge. Admiral on the Bridge. We have our mother, Laura Ryan. Hello. All right, so this was a more fun watch than Star Trek The Motionless Picture. I would like to start the entire podcast by quoting the first line of Janet Maslin's review in the New York Times. Oh, you stole one of my things. June 4th, 1982, upon the release of this film, the very first line, now this is more like it. (laughs) (laughs) Jumping to the questions at the end, this is a Star Trek film. Mm -hmm. Through and through. I listened to the second CD. Ah, yeah, you saw the interview where... um, There were a couple of things that were on there that I thought was very clever. I came to that via the director. He writes about it in his his memoirs Mm -hmm. as well. No, this was just one of his interviews that I saw. There were two or three things that I saw there. One of them is is really great. I don't know if you knew it. You want to tell it now? Well, I didn't realize until I had it on that is that Khan and Kirk never have a scene together. Yep. Mm -hmm. And when they're doing their scenes, Ricardo said, I had to show all this motion. To a blank wall, <laughs> and his scene reader in his ear or off camera or whatever was the sweetest girl. <laughs> he said, "You just couldn't find a sweeter girl." And she would give Kirk's line, and he said, "I really had trouble because <laughs> she was so nice." Yeah, Maltabon had a tough time getting back into this role because mm-hmm. he'd been doing Fantasy Island for so long. Yeah. Uh, so unlike today, where you could just pull it up on Netflix. He had to go to Paramount and be like, hey, can you get me the reel-to-reel of Space Seed so I can watch it? Mm -hmm. And he just watched it on repeat. And he said after like the fourth or fifth viewing, he was like, oh, there's Khan. I've got it. Which is some poor intern at Paramount had to dig through because I'm sure they didn't keep it any place, you know. Convenient. Yeah. It's just I, I thought that was really cool. They had had to show it to someone else, of course, uh, which was writer and director Nicholas Meyer, who had never seen an episode of Star Trek when he came on board the project. Wow. And he did such yeah. a good job. And he watched several episodes, and one that leapt out to him was Space Seed. So should we talk a little bit about the interesting journey th- that got this movie made one more thing though yeah the reason that they had to film their scene separately is uh filming conflicts between montabon and um shatner because shatner was doing tj hooker at this point right yeah i think tj hooker was on so this is this would have been shot in i know that montabon shot for 10 days that was it wow really holy crap he shot all his part in 10 days and it's not you know it's not a walk-on he's in a lot of the movie good for him so what you got colin (laughs) So, after Star Trek, the motion picture, which had run vastly over budget, as we discussed in our first episode, available where podcasts are sold, which ran to $45 million, which is a lot of money, it still managed to make a profit. It made about $83 million. So, 
Paramount was definitely interested in another one. They had two major conditions. One, it had to cost a lot less. <laughs> and two, Gene Roddenberry would now be executive consultant, meaning he would he would not be anywhere near the set and he would have no real power over the film. He had been at loggerheads with Robert Wise quite a bit on the first movie, and um, they really felt like they needed to move on without him. So this is the first Star Trek project to not have the direct involvement of Gene Roddenberry, and actually none of the rest of the films will have the direct involvement of Gene Roddenberry. I'm surprised he let it go. Well, he still made money off of it, so it was yeah. make, make money off a second movie, or... I have two words for you, Mom. George Lucas. <laughs> you throw enough money at somebody, they're going to let their baby go. Well, at this point, he turns his attention much more towards creating Next Generation, which you know come, happen, right. happens four years after this. That's crazy. Um, yeah. There were a bunch of scripts going around. Basically, all the scripts basically came from just, we need a second Star Trek movie. We need a second Star Trek movie. There were, at one point, five scripts, none of which <laughs> they liked. And so the person who had come on to sort of be the executive producer, uh, Harv Bennett, he wanted, well, after a few considerations of, of directors, one of whom was uh, strongly considered was, Apparently, Ron Howard, which would have been a really different turn. Yeah. But they go to Nicholas Meyer, who has, as I mentioned before, never seen Star Trek. Uh, at this point, the only thing Nicholas Meyer had directed was his own script adapting the novel Time After Time, which, have, you, have either of you ever seen Time After Time? Yep. It's a good movie. Uh, so the it's about... Uh, I'm not sure. H.G. Wells actually invents the time machine and uses it to follow Jack the Ripper to 1970s San Francisco and stop him from continuing to kill. A future Star Trek uh, actor is in that. Two future Star Trek actors. It stars Malcolm McDowell. Oh, right. Malcolm McDowell is the other one. Yes. And David Warner. And David Warner. Um, David Warner. David Warner, who will be discussed many times on this podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> sure will. So he had directed that, uh, and that only that, and kind of a wunderkind. But he had been Oscar-nominated for his script adapting his own novel, uh, The 7% Solution. So he was sort of a, hmm. a hot wunderkind kind of kid in the 70s. And so they bring him in. There's five scripts. They're a mess. He reads them. He says they're all terrible. But there's things they like in each of them. The Genesis device. Kirk has a son. Khan. Savick. These are all ideas that exist in these different scripts. So what they do is they make a list of all the things they like. And he says, well, I'll write the script. And they say, wow. well, the only problem is, is that we have 12 days before ILM needs to see the script. Industrial Light and Magic was doing the effects. And they said, we have 12 days. We won't make the dates in the theaters. He says, what do you, what do you mean, dates in the theaters? Oh, we've booked dates in the theaters for June of next year. So he sits down and in 12 days wrote the script to this, uh, this film. 12 days. And basically said, I want to direct it. So they let him direct. He didn't wind up getting the, the screenwriting credit because of a whole bunch of back and forth with who the original ones were. And basically, it takes a lot of time to go through the process of adjudicating who's going to be the, the author with the Writers Guild. And they didn't have the time. So he didn't bother with it. And then later, it couldn't be fixed. Mm. Uh, but that is the story of, of you know how the, the movie we know came to be. It was yeah. sort of 
pirating ideas from all these other ones and coming at it with someone who, who really had no strong affinity for the property at all. Let's hold on to that thought for a future Star Trek movie that it did not work for. Mm-hmm. Something that I found out from that second disc in the original one that they sent to Nimoy in Israel because he was in Golda Meir or something shooting over there was that Spock died very early in the movie. Yeah. He was like the inciting incident for them to go and do the thing. Yeah. And he goes, no, that doesn't work for me. Right. That was one of the other elements was the Spock's death. But eventually it kept getting moved further back because they realized Mm -hmm. it has to be the climax of the film. Yeah. So Spock's death was leaked. Everybody knew it was going to happen. It was leaked by Gene Roddenberry on stage at conventions. And everybody was pissed. (laughs) Yeah, he wasn't too bitter that he couldn't be on the set. There was a lot of conflict. He did not approve of many elements, including the increased feel of a, of Starfleet being military, uh, and he did not approve of Spock's death. So he leaked it, and Spock dies in the very first scene. They all die in the very first scene. They sure do. In the, right. in the simulator. And many people have written about being totally fooled by it. Oh, they went in, they were spoiled. Oh, it was a, it was a bad rumor. Spock doesn't really die. And then getting totally undercut by the ending. God. So Nicholas Meyer is a very clever writer. He has a real affinity for playing in other people's sandboxes. Uh, as I said, he, he wrote a book called The 7% Solution, which is about Sherlock Holmes goes to get cured of his cocaine addiction by Sigmund Freud. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And then he wrote the script for the the film adaptation. And he's since written two other, not quite as good as 7% Solution, but very solid Holmes pastiches or non-canonical Holmes books. Or rather, he's credited as the editor of the papers of Dr. John H. Watson, as everybody who writes non-Conan Doyle uh, Sherlock Holmes books is. He's a very clever guy, very quick with a literary reference, <laughs> and um, that, which shows enormously in this script, which is absolutely drenched in literary references. Yes, yes, it is. So back to the death in the beginning mm-hmm. of everybody on the bridge crew. We all got the joke there also, right? What color are they all now wearing? Oh, <laughs> red shirts. <laughs> Are these the second best Star Trek uniforms? I think they have a a strong chance of being the best Star Trek uniforms. They're the ones that make the most sense. (laughs) They were the ones that were used in several films, weren't they? These will continue until First Contact. Generations. First Contact will be the next film that does not contain these. Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. I see, because there's the scene. Okay. I actually like that it splits up science and medical and engineering and... Well, there's no real security. The security wear those weird helmets. We don't see them in this movie. We'll see them in the search for Spock, but they're like helmets with like the hockey pads. Um, But it's white for command, gold engineering, gray science, light green medical, and cadets and trainees wear red. And then I didn't see any, but it lists black for enlisted people. So there's some recycled costumes in engineering, the ones that look like they kind of have a big circle on the front. Mm -hmm. And I think, yes, these are absolutely costumes that they were glad to stick with. Everybody looks great in them. They really, they contribute to this nautical feel. Mm -hmm. They also 
didn't have the budget to ever replace them. You know, there there's a question here, like, is Star Trek a little better when it's a little cheaper? So as I said, $45 million was the final budget, for, with the final r- having run completely over budget for motion picture. Guesses? Anybody got guesses on what this cost? 22. Mom? I have no idea. 12. Whoa! Which is not a small amount of money in 1981, but, but is a lot less how much of that was salary for the well, actors? Well, the salary for the actors, you know, though uh, Montalban took less than what he was offered. He's a real mensch, really? that guy. He considered it a real highlight of his career. Speaking of reviews, if you can track down Pauline Kael's review in The New Yorker, it is, it, he, the, and then you can track down a letter he wrote to Pauline Kael thanking her for the review because the main thesis of the review is Hollywood has been wasting Ricardo Montalban for 40 years. <laughs> well, well, there's a great story that, that Meyer tells. So he was nervous. He had met and done rehearsals with all the Star Trek cast, and he'd worked out how he was going to work with them. He has an interesting quote he says about um, – about Shatner. He says, Shatner has no ego about Shatner, but he has vanity about Kirk. Yep. Which is an, an interesting way of putting it. And he realized pretty soon that most of them knew the characters better than he did, and he should listen to their input. Um, Smart. But he had not worked with Montalban. He had met with him, but it had been, they hadn't quite synced. And he shot, the first thing he ever shot was the the scene on SETI Alpha 5, where he the long monologue where he explains everything. And they, mm-hmm. they shot it in one long take, and it was great, but it was huge. He's like, it's great. He knows all the lines. It's amazing. But they went back, and they had this conversation in his trailer. Meyer writes about being very nervous about talking to Montalban about it because he was somewhat awed by him. He said he, he talked to him, and he said, this was good, and this was good, but we need this. We need less. We needs to be shaped. It needs to be quiet, intense vengeance. We really need to choose our loud moments here. And then Montalban just stopped, and he said, oh, thank goodness. You're going to direct me. <laughs> Because he said for years, for years, he had just been given blocking and be a sexy Latin lover and blocking <laughs> and be a menacing Indian. And he enjoyed being directed. Mm-hmm. And they were off to the races. And Meyer wrote something to the effect of, like, I've never driven a Porsche, <laughs> but I imagine it responds to your direction much the same way as Ricardo Montalban does. He was like, it was great. I could say anything to him. And he gave me exactly what I was looking for. He was just wow. so responsive and so into it. Would that Porsche have rich Corinthian leather? Yes. <laughs> On that disc, and I can't remember if it was the director or the writer, but he said... That is really recovered. Oh, that was what chest. I was just want to bring up. Yep, let's get it out of the way. It's it's absolutely him. That was really his chest. The vest makes it seem like it is not his chest. Just because where it lies would be the perfect place to hide a false chest. Yeah, but, but he's a fit guy. He I was mean, fair. he always was. Yeah. He was tall, he was fit. Did either of you go back and watch Space Seed? I did not. But he, I, I remember him being very fit in that jumpsuit. Yeah, and he is a plunging neckline in that. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, he was big, handsome, fit man who kind of probably would have been a much, much bigger star if he hadn't been Latin. The accent really, sadly. Well, Meyer said to Meyer said he taught you should be playing Lear. You should, and he's like, well, no, I can't. With the, the he said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And of course, today it probably wouldn't. He would be playing Lear if he was alive today. One hundred percent. 
you know, but things were just a lot. Now, so interesting, talking about this, the time when this was actually made mom, do you remember this movie coming out? Did you, you didn't see it in the theaters, did you? I think I did. I think I saw it with you guys for some reason. Not with, uh, <laughs> not, not in the original I was one, because Casey would have been about nine months old. Oh, no, okay. <laughs> what was the release date of this? Hmm. No, he, he would have been a little over one. It's June, June 1982. Yep. But that's a pretty plausible time for you and dad to maybe have been like, okay, let's go see something. Let's leave them at home for, you know. Or it's, let's get away from these damn kids. <laughs> maybe you did see it. The only of these films that I haven't seen in the theater is the first mm-hmm. one and Nemesis and Beyond. Everything else I've seen in the theater. Oh, and, and I've never seen uh, Search for Spock in the theater. This I didn't obviously see. I was four. I did not see um, in the theater. But I have since seen it at least twice in revival mm-hmm. uh, production. You know, and it's um, it holds up. Despite having been made by Paramount's television division, that was one of the cost-saving things. Oh. It was always intended to be a theatrical movie, but the production of it came out of the television division. The idea being, in TV, we know how to do things quick and cheap, and we don't run over budget. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. All the rest of them came out of the television hmm. division, at least through Undiscovered Country, which was, by the way, Myers' intended subtitle for this film was The Undiscovered yep. Country. Well, and then it was supposed to be The Revenge of Khan, but the yes. final Star Wars movie had already been announced, and it was Revenge of the Jedi. So they went, oh, God, abort, abort, abort. We can't have the same. So they made it Wrath of Khan. And then somebody wisely said to George, um, aren't Jedis peaceful? Should they not be seeking revenge? <laughs> um, but this movie actually shares a lot of similarities with Empire Strikes Back. Did anybody catch all that? You mean other than being a sequel? What's the very first thing we see in the 23rd century? Right. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Oh, sure. There's a lot of extended chase scenes, Han and Leia getting away from the Star Destroyers. Mm-hmm. Even that, because of that, they're, they're lovers thrown together, Han and Leia again. Um, you know, the end... Spock dying, but we know he's not dead even at the end of this, uh, is much like Han being frozen in carbonite. Yeah, and there are some similarities. So again, following, like, motion picture followed Star Wars and made a worse movie because of it. This improved by following the blueprint for the best Star Wars movie. I would be interested to hear if Meyer was familiar with it. He definitely strikes me as the kind of guy who might not have even seen The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, that's very true. Where Philly is different, though, is that Empire is such an opening out of the Star Wars universe. Let's go shoot on location. Let's do more and have more and more. And this is – it's a – it's such a smaller film than the first one. It's a submarine movie. And yet is so good. One thing that's really interesting is – Meyer freely admits he did not know what to do with the camera. He was a writer as a director when he made Time After Time. And that he w- he went to his crew and said, I don't always know what I'm doing, so I'm, I want you to tell me what you think. Mm. And then I want you to be ready for me to tell you we want to do it, I want to do it my way anyway, because that's the only way this works, but I want input. Nice. And he, I want to learn. And he obviously did, because there are some truly remarkable uses of the camera in this mm-hmm. um there's there's one amazing tracking shot which is the shot when when kirk goes over sees spock at the science station uh david is there and they they basically 
discuss the fact that they are not going to outrun this explosion. And then it tracks to Spock. You see Spock make the decision and leave. And that's all one shot from mm-hmm. the captain's chair over. Uh, and there is a, a lot of really great use of doubling motifs when Kirk sees goes to Spock's uh, room. You see Kirk in the mirror above Spock's head. Yeah. So they're, they're together but separate. Yeah. There's some, another long shot where you see both Kirk in the captain's chair and Spock at the science station. They're both in the frame. Kirk is lit in red. Spock is lit in blue. They're together but separate. Mm-hmm. And then how does the movie pay off? They're together. But separate. But separate. And uh, yeah, the death scene, obviously. We're going to review the movie, but the spoilers abound all the time. So Shatner claims to have come up with the idea of having Spock dying in the engine room and separated by glass. I like this part, and maybe this would have been better. He says his idea was to have the glass be opaque. So when it was just Spock, you only saw the silhouette of Kirk. And when it was just Kirk, you saw the silhouette of Spock. I'm like, oh, that's he wanted that so and you could see a tear dropping. You could see Spock with a tear. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm okay with Spock not crying, but I just uh, <laughs> I thought that was a really interesting to just kind of to go with the theme of together but separate that he can't even see his friend at his when he's dying. You know, yeah, that could have been interesting, but just a nightmare to shoot. Yeah, and to edit now the editing and cinematography on this are also excellent. Oh yeah, top notch. Yeah. So the DP was Gain Reschner, and he shot uh, Ely Kazan's The Face in the Crowd. Oh, okay. Uh, a Face in the Crowd, which, if you've ever seen, is uh, a truly chilling and terrifying performance by Andy Griffiths. Um, Andy Griffin? Andy Griffith as a, I believe from Arkansas, an Arkansas kind of an evil Will Rogers, a singing, storytelling populist who is truly truly dangerous that is the perfect Uh, description it's a great movie it really you definitely should see it Uh, um and it's a beautifully shot movie this guy was a pro and it shows in this like even if you haven't seen that you you can see in this movie that there's a really good cinematographer getting some amazing amazing composition shots in this movie yeah both he and the editor and um William Paul Dornish and Meyer wonderfully disguise things like the fact that it almost entirely takes place on one set. Mm -hmm. So the Reliant Bridge is the Enterprise Bridge. Sure is. Just as is the simulator in the beginning. That's all the same set, just redressed. Star Trek is famous. Uh, This is probably obviously the beginning of it, but on Deep Space Nine, they had to go on on a long trip and hey, we don't have any other sets built, so we'll just put them on an Intrepid class. We'll put them on the same class as the Voyager because we have these sets here. It's always been their way. So, Mom. Yes? We established you may or may not have seen this in the theater. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, might not remember. I have trouble remembering what I did yesterday, <laughs> much less what I did. How, how long had it been since you, before rewatching it for this? I know you'd seen it before this because... Yeah. Yeah, I believe you always refer to it with as the one where they go, the worm goes in the ear. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a rough but, scene. But uh, you probably hadn't watched it on your own for fun oh. in years, right? No, not in years. I watched it about three weeks ago. Yeah, Discover. Okay. I watched it, and then I 
watched it again today. Now, the motion picture, I had to watch three times. I had to sit through that oh. thing three oh. times. There's six. Much you, worse. Well, the, this time I noticed a lot more things that I didn't pick up on, like why Bones had to give him glasses because he was allergic to what he would normally get. Right. To, the, to, the, the shot. When, yeah. yeah the, I didn't pick up on that. And um, I'm just going to comment that with as low as the budget was for this and for the other Star Trek pictures, Paramount must have made a buttload of money. Box office for this was $97 million. And it only cost, what, 12. 22 It cost $12. Make? Oh, 12 Yeah, that's why, that's, why, that's why three happened and four happened right away. I wonder if the actors took part of the, what is it they call it, where they get a percentage? What is Back end? Yeah, if they took any of the back, back end, end, if they did did that instead of getting big stuff. I don't think that those deals really happened very much then. Talking about Star Trek III, uh, one of the main stipulations for uh, Nimoy coming back is that Spock, when Spock died, Spock's dead. I read somewhere that the, the mm-hmm. Remember yeah. with him melding with Bones was not filmed by Accurate. Nicholas Meyer. Yeah, it was filmed by somebody at Paramount, and when Nicholas Meyer heard about it, he said, you're going to take my name off this movie. And Well, no, it wasn't filmed without his knowledge or permission. Well, filmed, in a sense, without his permission. Both that and the final establishing shot of... Um, the Mark IV? Yeah. Of, of the torpedo on the Genesis planet were film, not filmed by Meyer. They were filmed over his strenuous objections, mm-hmm. which he now says he doesn't feel as strongly about, probably because they brought him back to do two more movies. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, well, they said he, that... Uh, he's a writer on, on Star Trek IV. They said oh, that... okay, okay. He's only a director on six. Yeah, the, the okay. first cut film, when it was first put out to the reviewed by audiences, yeah, when they shoot him off into space... That was the end of it. Yes, yes, that was added. And he said people just just walked out silent. I mean, nobody. The test said, audiences they, hated that. Yeah, they hated it, and so they went back and decided to do the other thing. And yeah. Nimoy didn't know about the shot of the torpedo, and at the premiere is when he found out about it. And when they were interviewing me afterwards, he said, "Well, I guess I'm getting a call from Paramount." <laughs> <laughs> well, what was Shatner complaining about? I don't remember. His hairpiece? I can remember. He was well, saying, no. I, I was never told about it. I was never told about it. That was on the second disc that I watched today. Yeah. Shatner's original reaction to the script was he hated it, and it was a few minor tweaks that led him to think it was absolutely brilliant. More scenes for him? Well, I think I, my understanding is that the original version of the script from Meyer may have slightly overplayed the... Kirk is getting old. Kirk is behind, is off his game thing, mm-hmm. which comes through plenty. I mean, you, you that that's not does not need any more underlining as a theme. I got the impression he wasn't real happy about that because on that disc it said when he was being interviewed, and the the commentator said to him something about this proves that actors over forty can can star in movies, and he was fifty at the time. <laughs> when this was shot, and he goes, well, yeah, well, maybe. No. He wasn't. I don't, how old do we think Kirk is? I don't know that Kirk is supposed to be as old as Shatner was. Um, I think Kirk is probably supposed to be in, in the back half of his 40s here. Oh, I saw something which, I don't know how they did the math, but they're saying that the star date that's given at the beginning of this and the star date that's given in Star Trek 2009, which I don't know how you can do those, they're different kinds of star dates. We'll get to that when we get to the Kelvin universe. 
uh, puts him at being 52. It's possible. I mean, remember, too, uh, it's pretty established that in the 23rd century, human lifespans have been expanded. It's not unusual to live to 120. So maybe 52 really looks like 46, 47. Yeah, that's true. And has culturally taken on the same kind of significance. But it is what makes the movie work is the vulnerability of mm-hmm. Kirk, the the fact that he's getting old, that, you know, that continuing theme. It looks like we have an incoming transmission. Let's uh, let's talk about this movie. Colin, you have the con on this one. In 2285, Admiral James T. Kirk oversees a simulator session of Captain Spock's trainees. In the simulation, Lieutenant Savick commands the starship USS Enterprise on a rescue mission to save the crew of the damaged ship Kobayashi Maru but is attacked by Klingon cruisers and critically damaged. Uh, the Klingon cruisers, I want to point out, are the, is the exact same footage. Yes, it is reused footage. From Star Trek The Motion Picture. It is. It is reused footage. I thought that looked familiar. Yeah. I thought oh, yeah. That it's looked the, familiar. And especially, it, you notice it more watching them so close together, like, hang on a damn minute. <laughs> that's the same footage. Save money. It's not the last time that's going to happen. Yeah, especially Klingon ships seem to get <laughs> recycled more than anything yeah. else. So the simulation is a no-win scenario designed to test the character of Starfleet officers. Later, Dr. McCoy joins Kirk on his birthday. Seeing Kirk in low spirits, the doctor advises Kirk to get a new command and not grow old behind a desk. This may be the best performance throughout the entire movie that Shatner gives. The, the scene in his apartment? No, no, no. This movie. Oh. This is the best Kirk we get. Oh, I think this is this is definitely Shatner's highlight in the whole series. Not that he's bad in others, he's great but... At, he's, yeah. No, no. Well, everybody's bad in Final Frontier. I'm going to say that right now. Nobody gave a crap. Yeah, it's not <laughs> but good. in Undiscovered Country, he's got a different feel to him. But there's so many great moments like... Romulan ale, bones, you know, this is illegal. I only use it for medicinal purposes. Take a swig of it, and him being like, taking the swig and having the expression of, I've made a ginormous mistake. I was wondering if they really spiked what was in that glass mm. because I thought his his reaction was priceless. <laughs> so good. It's it's a wonderful reaction. It travels that whole like, oh, this was a mistake. Oh, okay, maybe I'll have a little more cuz you know, he by the end he's smiling about it. And it is also in that one shot of him taking that shot, his face moves more than it did in the entire first movie. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And like you look at the old series, he has these really hammy moments. He has some good moments in the original series, but I don't think there's a moment in this movie where it's it's hammy Kirk. No, no. And I, there's a moment that some people think is. And when we get to it, I want to talk about what's really going on. Oh, you know what? I do take that back. And I think we're going to fall on opposite sides of the uh, the coin right. on that one. The very opening of this movie is so human. That's the scene where Spock mm-hmm. gives him the book. The, What's the book? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The Tale of Two Cities. I know. I just want to make sure that everyone... Because it's never actually said. It's not. Myers is definitely one to want you to un, to know the... You know, but is there another book that, ev- that that many people know both the first and last lines of? That is the very end of A Tale of Two Cities. So while we're here, let's talk about the book itself. He has handed it before they go on this mission. He is starting it. In that last scene where David comes in, he is finishing it. Is Kirk some kind of damn speed reader? Days have gone by. No. Kirk has read A Tale of Two Cities 12 times before. 
Oh, I thought it was. It felt like that was a new book for him. No, I don't think so. So this is one of the things that Meyer really wanted. He said, well, why don't people have books in the future? He wanted no smoking, visible no smoking signs on the bridge. Thankfully, yep. that one he was overruled. But Kirk's antiques collection, he, he, he wanted people that still have connections to tangible objects. And I think this is the beginning of where you get to this idea that, that books are probably not the main way people read, but they are, as they sort of have become now, uh, fetish status objects. Yeah. You know? Geez, it's almost like people doing a podcast about movies that came out in their childhood. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's, it, you know, you own a book. So that he's being given that book as a collectible. I assume it's a, if there was money, and this is before they really established that there wasn't, um, that's a next generation thing, but it, that it would be a valuable object, valuable for its antiqueness, not just as a reading experience. So I assume that Kirk, because otherwise, how does he quote, the end. If you look, when David comes in, he's at the end of the book. Sure. So at but, least good good on them if that's the reason that he's finished the book. He's at the end of the book because it's the end of the movie. <laughs> it's just underlining the themes. Well, gosh, Khan has uh, come back and he's threatening everybody <laughs> and he might blow up this planet. Oh, I'm going to go read for a little bit. Bye. Uh, um, and then the scene with McCoy in the, is such a gorgeously human scene. I mean, DeForest Kelly is wonderful in that in oh, that scene. Yes. Sitting by the fire, talking to him. DeForest Kelly is, he's in, he's on the bridge. He's in sick bay. He's down in engineering. He's in Kirk's apartment. I mean, did, he, did DeForest Kelly get paid for every scene he was in? Because he no, was I think like Nicholas Meyer knew that there was a good actor in DeForest Kelly and put him in every go. scene possible. Still haven't figured out why he was down in engineering. Because people were being injured, and he's the doctor. Oh, at the end? Yeah, he's the yeah. chief medical officer. That's not odd that he was there. He's down there to try and triage people and keep them alive. I don't ever remember seeing Doris, DeForest Kelly in any in the engineering, even when people were getting injured. Never. Oh, sure. But, but, but I missed it. <laughs> I would believe that if Nick Meyer is, wants books, wants no smoking signs, wants things grounded and human as much as possible, that he is going to gravitate to DeForest Kelly, the most grounding and human uh, character and McCoy you know, in the whole series, that he's going to want sure. more McCoy in there. And he's terrific in this. And and that scene is so lovely. I think this is something we'll keep coming back to. Like, there is a push-pull balance in Star Trek between Star Trek showing us what we can become, showing us a idealized, per somewhat perfected version of the future, and Star Trek reflecting who we are right now. And it's been there since the beginning, right? So it's a much more multicultural crew in 1966 than any workspace probably was in 1966. And no. yet... There's still a Cold War with the Klingons, and we're going to use that to talk about the Cold War. So that mm -hmm. that dichotomy, that push-pull is always there. And for me, Star Trek works best when it finds a balance between those. And if it tilts one way, you get too, too utopian. You get you know some of the bl blander elements of the beginning of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh -huh. And if you tilt too far the other way, well, we'll get there, but there are times that it's been too interested in showing us a, a grimy undercut. They're just as bad as we are 300 years later, which is not what you come to Star Trek for. And I think this movie finds a really good sweet spot for that, and it comes from having Nick Meyer being a bit of an outsider. Yeah. 
Does that track? Does that does that sort of Colin's first grand overarching theory of Star Trek kind of track no, as as something that makes sense? <laughs> it totally tracks. It totally tracks, and I 100 percent agree. Yeah. Can we talk about how rad Kirk's apartment is? Oh sure. I would live there in a second. I like the curved walls. There's uh, the no cur- way you can afford that in San Francisco now. It's <laughs> That's just true. San Francisco is crazy. Um, but like his his view of the Bay Area, those unmatching recliners in front of the fire. I'm like, yeah, sure. Kirk's apartment was on a ship, wasn't he? Wasn't it on the no, that's that's San Francisco. When his son comes in, he jumps up and puts his coat on and says That's his quarters at the end. I'm talking about when Bones Bones oh. brings in the Romulan ale. That's I got confused. I thought they were both the same. Okay. Because they're still on Earth. That's Earth. In fact, interesting fact, the last movie, the first movie, is the first time they ever go to 23rd century, you know, not the past, Earth mm-hmm. in Star Trek, ever. Yeah. And then every single movie except one will do it. Go to 20th. We'll spend time in, for them, current day, without time travel, Earth. It's specifically San Francisco. Yes, often San Francisco, yes. Wasn't that where Star Trek headquarters was? That's where Starfleet headquarters is, yeah. Star Trek sure is. Starfleet, yeah. That brings me to another interesting thing about this movie. So I'm cribbing from some things I've read, but there's just this recurring theme of performance and acting in this movie. Mm-hmm. The very first thing we see is basically all the people we we know, except the only person we who isn't acting is Savick. Right. Everybody else is doing a performance in order to test Savick. And you even have that Bone says the line. What about my performance? I'm not a drama critic. <laughs> There's layers to it because the doors open and in comes Kirk and you realize, oh, we thought we were on the Enterprise. It's just a soundstage in California. Well, the bridge of the Enterprise has always been a soundstage in California. Right. And then acting keeps coming up. How does he keep beating Khan? Three times. Three times he puts on a little show. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, everybody is declaiming lines from freaking Moby Dick and Tale of Two Cities. And yeah. Did you notice that on the set of Alpha Five or whatever it is, when Chekhov looks at the books, Moby Dick is right there. Right. It's the only title Dead I center. could read was Moby Dick. The other two are King Lear. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. That's right. And Paradise Lost. Oh. I remember seeing Lear now. Paradise Lost is referenced at the very end of Space Seed. Khan oh. says in his trial before they send him to Sede Alpha 5, he says, you know, I assume you've read your Milton. And, and Kirk acknowledges it without ever saying it. Have you ever read Milton? And then Scotty says, Shame for a good Scotsman to admit it, but I'm not up on Milton. The statement Lucifer made when he fell into the pit is it's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. The Paradise Lost thing, but the, the literariness of Khan is sort of already there in Space Seed. This may be as good a Ahab we're ever going to get on screen. Well, well, that's the other thing. This movie is so good, and this movie so... Absolutely saved the franchise, right? If this movie 100%. hadn't been this good, there wouldn't have been any more Star Trek movies, much less The Next Generation, much less all the rest. It would be Battlestar Galactica, right? Before yeah. that reboot. It right. would be just a weird little cultural curiosity of a sci-fi cult thing. Mm-hmm. It saved the franchise, but it kind of in some ways ruins it because they keep trying to recreate the magic. Yes, they do. There are two, basically two more movies that are basically a remake of this. 
plus a movie that is a sequel to an extremely popular episode of the series in which there's a lot of quoting of Moby Dick. So, oh, I've got so much to look forward to. <laughs> now, no, some of some of that works better than others. I, I love this movie. I'm I'm no, really? not not trying to run it down, but this movie is not about exploration. Nope. Even the key MacGuffin of science is basically treated as a weapon. Uh, yeah. And more or less, at least in the the uh original series movies, they're none of them are gonna be about exploration anymore. Yeah. And so it saved the franchise and it kind of changed it forever in some ways that aren't as you know that's it's not hard to find people online who hate this movie really because it they consider it a betrayal of of all things truly star trek sure. in fact that was one of the things that led me to go back and watch space seed was that there are some one of a lot of them complain that khan was this very multidimensional complicated villain in the in the thing, and here he's very like he's just a revenge driven. Yeah, well, living on a planet surrounded by sand twenty four seven, it, it might mess Ex- with your mind. Uh, don't forget the worms. And don't forget I, his wife died. I would prefer <laughs> uh, not. To. Yeah. Now that is entirely true. Also, if you go back and watch Space Seed, he's not quite as multidimensional as you think. As they as they're making him out, he's 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 a cruel, petty tyrant who thinks of himself as a sophisticated man of the world, who thinks he was going to better mankind by conquering it. Right. You know, but he's an unreliable, and in some ways the episode is almost unreliably narrating, and you kind of go, oh, oh, wait, no, he's a monster. Um, The woman who played uh, Lieutenant MacGyvers, who is Uh, the woman he, she... The the character was in some early drafts. Who would she who, had multiple sclerosis and could right, not come back could not return. Yeah, who was that? Uh, I forget the actress's name. I but she was a she was a crew member who Khan tricked into helping him escape. And she, when they're sentenced, she's like, "Oh, I want to go too. I love him." Yeah, oh, she basically she's actress? almost. Right. The one yeah. Just want, yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Did you watch? Do you go back and watch Space? No. Seed? The disc, the second disc, had scenes. From oh, it. right. Had some scenes from it. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's my basic knowledge of the episode. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, from remembrance, I've obviously seen it, but. Yeah. It's 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 a good one. It's worth going back and watching. It's a it's a pretty solid episode. Starship log. Start date eight one three zero point four. Meanwhile, the Starship Reliant is on a mission to search for a lifeless planet to test the Genesis device, a technology designed to reorganize dead matter into habitable worlds. Reliant Officers Commander Pavel Chekhov, I believe this is the first time Chekhov has given his first name. Yes. And Captain Clark Terrell. Beam down to evaluate a planet they believe to be SETI Alpha 6. Once there, they are captured by the genetically engineered tyrant Khan Noonien Singh, explaining that they are on SETI Alpha 5. The word explaining is very loose there because... This is SETI Alpha 5! (laughs) It's great. Fifteen years ago, Kirk exiled Khan and his fellow Superman to SETI Alpha 5 after they attempted to take over his ship. Speaking of ships, because I like to mention them, the Reliant is a Miranda-class starship. It's also an upside-down. It's what? When they sent the drawings to, I guess it was Bennett in Israel... Uh-huh. He opened up the package and the reliant was upside down. Oh, and the nacelles were up up above? They were supposed to be up above? Oh my god. They were supposed to be up above. And he signed it, this is okay, at the bottom. And there was a big discussion as to whether or not 
should we tell them it was the other way around or what? And then they decided that they didn't have enough time to get it back over to Israel and back to the States. They made the right I guess choice. They didn't have fax machines back then. The Miranda class is a great looking starship. Originally, it was going to be another Constitution class. They were going to redress the model. Boo. Well, there are two good reasons they didn't. One, it would have been much harder to create the tension and the and the storytelling in the in the space battles because it would have been hard to tell them apart exactly this is why i say boo <laughs> the real reason they didn't do it is the enterprise model was massive and heavy and unwieldy sure and fragile and the the effects crew hated it so they said you cannot make another one we didn't really talk about it in the motionless picture i want to bring it up here real quick the coloring on the enterprise that aztec coloring where how however the light hits it it gets the tile effect is very cool and gets incredibly screwed up. I believe in between this movie and the next movie it went on loan to the Smithsonian and somebody at the Smithsonian was like, that looks stupid on display. Let's just paint it white. <laughs> and oh, they really? Turned it and they went, Oh crap. And had very little time to fix it. It's either between this one and three or in between uh, four. Well, no, it wouldn't be four and five, and I don't think it's five and six. So it's got to be this. If you go back and and watch on Netflix, which is where I watched um, Space Seed, I, uh, you you can only watch there the remastered ones where right. they put in new digital effects to replace some of the old effects. And unlike the original uh, model from the show, it has that same panel rippling on the oh, digital. The digital. Really? original pre-refit version. Yeah. I love um, that. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, because when we get to those space battles, they're shot so economically. Mm -hmm. Most of the storytelling intention comes from shots of Shatner's and Montalban's faces, not from the ships. Because, again, they didn't have the budget for all those effect shots. And right. I, I do think it would have been really impossible to create that effect um, with the thing. And with, you know, identical models. And while we're talking about things that make the space battles and the whole damn movie work, we have to talk about James Horner. Yes, we do. This is one of the great film scores, I think. I just such a good score, and it absolutely makes this movie work in many ways, particularly the space battle scenes. I mean, yeah. right now I can hear the battle in the Matara Nebula theme in my head. And and it, it's such a great score. I you were you were talking just to go back to mm -hmm. something about how heavy the Enterprise was. Did you notice? Did you catch it? The first the the first last shot that destroyed Reliant. That when it took the first the model. No. no. When they when they take you out the that? the photon. Yeah, the, the model. Yeah. It looks. I mean, the special effects through everywhere are just, as far as I'm concerned, perfect. But that one little thing where the model shook. The other thing was. Do you ever remember in the series hearing footsteps when they walked in the bridge or oh, when no. they walked someplace else on the ship? Yeah, yeah. sure do. They you do in here. It was to me. It was very distracting. It, you could hear them walking across the bridge. You could hear them walking down the hall. You could hear them walking in engineering. So this is that grounding thing that the thing that hooked um, Meyer in is he realized, he said, oh, 
it's Horatio Hornblower in space. 100%. Horatio Hornblower is a series of novels by C.S. Forrester. He also wrote The African King, Sink the, uh, African Queen, sorry, Sink the Bismarck. They're naval adventure stories. It turns out they were actually an inspiration to both Shatner and Roddenberry as they were creating Star Trek and then as he was creating the role of Kirk. Separately, the DNA of that was sort of recognized and leaned into. So, you know, you can... If you've ever been on a wooden sailing ship, you can hear every footstep. Mm -hmm. In fact, he really wanted to have a scene of, it's called running out the guns on a, on a wooden sailing ship circa the Napoleonic Wars, which is when um, Horatio Hornblower is set. You have to run out the guns. They have to be loaded. The, the, the cannon has to be loaded and is run out by a team through the porthole, fired, run back. You, and the, the guns are not stored hanging out the side of the, the thing, right. of the boat. They have to be, and so he wanted running out the guns, and you have it, where they, they're lifting panels and running out the, the tor torpedoes, and you see those insert shots in the space battle, and people fought him on it. He's like, I will, I want to have a running out the guns. It's like, that's, you want that. He want, um, and people fought him on it saying, well, surely that's all done by the computer and the, da -da -da -da. and he said, I don't care. I want it. And it's a great scene. And he said, has said that. Since then, fans have come to him and said, well, of course it's always done by the computer, but the Reliant had had severely damaged the Enterprise, so they have to do it by hand. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. people will fill in whatever, whatever you need. If they, like, if they like what you saw, they will fill in a story to make it work. Speaking of damage to the Enterprise, let's keep a reminder of how damaged the Enterprise is in this movie because it's some for some reason is much more damaged than the next one. Oh really? Oh my god, so much more damage. I don't yeah. understand why. We have the EV suits for the first one in the, in this uh we're on Khan ship, so we have the EV suits again solely I think so that Khan can lift yeah. Chekhov up with one. Is the handle just there? They actually, that, that is, is how that, Wait a minute. Is that Chekhov's handle? No, oh, boy. Thank you. I'll see myself out. Both had a handle, but I think, because I caught it when he put him back down, I think the guy that was standing behind him helped him lift him up. <laughs> Quite possibly. I think so. There the had to have been something. Him. Yeah. In Spacey, when describing his strength level, before Khan wakes up, his strength level is described. He could probably lift either one of us with one arm. Mm-hmm. He's, so genetic, he's, he's genetically engineered, right? In 1966, they don't talk about it being genetically engineered. I, I don't remember. We'll have to, when the character is revisited in a future film, we will see what they describe it as what we would call genetic engineering, i.e. CRISPR or going in and tinkering with genes. There it is um, selective breeding. It's eugenics. Eugenics. And that's the word they use for a character in another Star Trek franchise that I won't say because mom should probably watch that series. Yeah, yeah, it's eugenics. Because, of course, in 1966, they couldn't really, they wouldn't think of that. They would think of eugenics rather than going in and tinkering with genes. Yes, 1966 is when the Space Seed takes place. Do we all giggle when uh, Khan said what year he was from? Never told you how the Enterprise picked up the Botany Bay lost in space from the year 1996. The far future. <laughs> well, that was, I mean, that's what's established in Space Seed. <laughs> It's so funny. <laughs> it's always the problem. Terminator had it, that everybody runs over their dates eventually. Oh, yeah. 
uh, Transformers the movie. The very first line is... It is the year 2005. No, it's not. We don't have half this shit. <laughs> Allow me to introduce you to SETI Alpha 5's only remaining indigenous life form. Uh, we can skip ahead because the ear thing is here, and I'm sure Mom doesn't want to talk about it at all. Well, I do want to call out Paul Winfield is marvelous in this movie. And grossly underused. <laughs> grossly underused. As uh, first African-American captain in Star Trek. Yeah. Well, he's not grossly underused, but he makes he ma- he's just always good, even in a very small part. And we'll come back for a total highlight of the franchise in uh, the fifth season episode, Darmok, of Star Trek Next Generation. Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. I want to ask you something. Did, did he shoot himself voluntarily? Or was Khan controlling him? I think Captain Terrell took over for a second, knew there's no other way out of this, and sadly committed suicide. That's always been my take on it, is that and that was the only escape. Permission to come aboard, Captain. Yeah. Welcome, Admiral. Let's move to Kirk coming to the Enterprise. Why didn't he just beam up? Why was there an electric bosun's whistle? Because he wanted to make it more nautical. Then just have a bosun's whistle. <laughs> But it has to be a space bosun's whistle. It makes no sense for her to to, to ring that. It's just it, she could have just been holding it in her hand. Is her breath controlling it? <laughs> just it, it it's the one piece of technology in Star Trek that I'm like I need I need schematics, please. This makes no sense. Kirk assumes command of the Enterprise after the ship being deployed on a training cruise receives a stress call from Regular One where the Genesis device is being developed by Kirk's former lover, Dr. Carol Marcus, and their son, David. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the film does a great job. Uh, first of all, Carol Marcus is a great character. Uh, BB, and I've never learned how to say her last name, I'm going to say Bessish. Sure. Does, it does a great job with it. What I love is that there's never a sense of that she and Kirk are going to get back together. It's right. not about that. No, they're on their own paths. They're on their own paths. There's no animosity, really. But now, and now they have to kind of find a way to co-parent now that Kirk is back in his son's life. But do they? Because David's a damn adult. There's no co-parenting to do. How old is David? I mean, yeah, David is... 25, isn't he? Didn't they say he was 25? 25, 26, something like that. So he, he met... Carol when he was not a captain then, I'm assuming. There is a line in, I believe it is in When No One, Nowhere No Man Has Gone Before, right? It's so it's where Gary Mitchell talks about so Kirk had been his, like, basically his TA, and he's like, and it's one of those things about we were talking about Kirk drift last time. Which yeah. I think this is, this is the same scene where he describes Kirk at the Academy as being a, a stack of books on legs. And he says, the only way I got you to stop riding my ass basically as a TA was I, I had to throw a blonde from the chemistry department at you. <laughs> and that's Carol. And Kirk's like, oh, is that you? And yeah, many people think, oh, that's probably Carol Marcus, okay. you know? That, that, that might, makes makes sense time-wise, too. Yeah. But, I mean, while we're on the subject of the sort of, you know, Lothario Kirk thing, nothing here ever makes you think that he, that this was, David is not the product of a one-night stand. And also, Kirk is not a deadbeat dad. This was a, a decision that they came to together. I did what you wanted. I stayed away. I don't think she said, stay away from my son because you're dangerous or anything. It's just, you're doing your thing, I'm doing my thing. I'd never read any kind of ill will between the two of them. They just realized they were on different career paths. Well, she says... You had your world, and I had mine. And I wanted him in mine. And and he is. He's, you know, there's that great bit where Dr. Marcus and they both look. You know, he has has become her. Right. Though he is... 
particularly well cast as a, a fairly plausible genetic offspring of those two actors. The only other thing I can think of is uh, the show Alias. If you take Lena Olin and Victor Garber and they have a baby, probably going to look like Jennifer Garner. Like, she looks like their offspring. It's amazing. And he comes back for... He's in three. uh, As a different character. He comes back in Next Gen, does he not? Oh, the actor? Um, Yeah. No, I don't believe so. quite young. The actor died, uh, I believe... Of AIDS. Yep, of AIDS. Um, yep. It's interesting. I, I, do, I kind of remember as as a kid not really liking him in the movie, but he's. I, I thought he was pretty good. I really he's don't fine. think it's a bad performance. Nope. The character is, he's a foil for Kirk. He's, you know, but he that that's the last scene they have together is really quite lovely. I wonder if my perspective on it has changed because I'm coming at it as a father and mm-hmm. imagining my adult son more than as a, a young man thinking, oh, this guy's kind of a twerp and he's ruining Kirk. <laughs> I was under the impression, or it, the way I interpreted it, is he didn't know that Kirk was his no. father until he came no, into he does his not, apartment. No, no, because no, maybe he has that scene where he says, remember that overgrown boy scout you used to hang around with? He knew who Jim Kirk was because she says, Jim Kirk was many things, but he was never a boy scout. Back to when they're all being introduced and when they're doing the, the electric bosun's whistle. Nonsense. Mr. Scott, you're old space dog. You're well. Scotty says, I had a wee bout, sir, but uh, Dr. McCoy pulled me through. Wee bout of one. Surely, that oh. one. <laughs> That's funny, but it's also in reference to the fact that in real life, James Doohan had just suffered a heart attack. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't. It was their little joke for that, too. Shore leave caused a heart attack, huh? Okay. <laughs> and give, giving the punchline to McCoy works really well. Is Spock captain of the Enterprise now? Yes. He's oh, Captain wow. Spock. He's It's a train. It's a training I, thing. And he's, notice, he, yeah. he his colors are, he wears command. He's no longer even... Identified with the science division and won't be for the rest of the film. And he for the rest of the films. And his lapel or his pip or whatever it is. When there's a scene between Kirk and Spock. As a teacher on a training mission, I am content to command the Enterprise. If we are to go on actual duty, it is clear that the senior officer on board must assume command. I wanted Kirk to be like, "Where the hell were you the last movie? We can do this." <laughs> I made Decker feel so bad. <laughs> oh, jeez. That's a great scene. Now, Nimoy hated the Spock's quarters set, and uh, apparently Nick Meyer has since said, yeah, he was right. Uh, it's not, it doesn't work, that set. I mean, it doesn't bother me, and I love, but I love that scene. But isn't he, it the same set he has in 6? Uh, well, I don't believe the giant mosaic is there. Oh, um, sure. But I think that mirror effect is there, because... You're not going to waste that. Right. It is not dissimilar to the shape of of his quarters on the original series. Mm -hmm. That little meditation chamber was there and things like that. But it's a great scene. And Nimoy is terrific in this. I thought Nimoy was was definitely the MVP of the first film as well. But it's odd how at peace he is with Spock here when he thinks he's letting go of it. Right. Yep. It seems to have, have awakened a joy in playing it again. That yeah. you know, he had a very fraught relationship with the. You know, he wrote two books, right? One called "I Am Not Spock," and then he eventually wrote one called "I Am Spock." <laughs> I think toward the end of the movie, he knew that he was going to be coming back, and he had accepted it and had come to embrace it. It was left that he could come back in a future film. It was not Spock's coming back in the next film until the torpedo tube. 
it was left open for if we want to bring Spock back, we have a way to bring him back. And we'll get to this when we talk to search for Spock, but he wasn't he wasn't on board for that film until certain conditions were met. Um, <laughs> yep, I do love that scene. You know, I mean, just again, how how these these are human beings again after being prop in a little diorama or a rather large and expensive diorama in the first film. You know, they're, now they're just right. really are human beings interacting with each other as such. Let's talk about Sulu and what are their stations? Helm and well, navigation? Che- Chekhov was the navigator on the original series uh, as of, well, he's first officer of the Reliant. No, that's what I'm, I'm going to, is it, but th- that's what they are. As of motion picture and through the rest of it, Chekhov is security. He's security tactical. Oh, right. He's in a different spot. Yeah. That is his position for the rest. Meanwhile, poor Sulu is stuck as the lieutenant. I believe it, this is the first film where there was discussion of Sulu getting his own command, and that definitely, yep. which eventually pays off. That that was something that Takei was pushing for. You know, so there's the famous Chekhov wasn't in Space Seed. How would he know who Chekhov is? You know who else is in Space Seed? Sulu. Sulu's not in Space Seed. Right. Sulu wasn't there. It's just, they didn't all show up in every episode. Well, and I think it's the fact that, A, we hadn't seen Chekhov at all, and the fact that that Khan is like, I never forget a face. <laughs> like, Chekhov should be like, oh, that's great. We've never met. Or Chekhov would have known about Khan from history books. He he could have also just been on the ship and, you know. Yeah. But- and as, as bad as the reheat of this movie when we get to the Abrams universe... They do a very smart job of making it that it's still tangible that Chekhov and uh, Khan never meet. You'll be shocked to learn that somebody has written a novel about Khan's years on SETI Alpha 5 and that it opens with him being escorted down there in a shuttlecraft piloted by Chekhov. There you go. So they just they got to close those loopholes, and that is what the tie-in novels are for. Hey, uh, you'll be surprised to know that I'm never going to read that book. <laughs> it's called To Rain in Hell. I'm, I'm not. It's already left my brain. For how long did they say they've been on there before it turned to a dust planet? SETI Alpha 6 exploded six months after we were left here. And they've been there 15 years, which, funnily enough, I, I never really clocked is basically the exact time in real time. Yep. This is this is something I want to ask you about, Mom. It feels so much longer to me because even though I was, what, three and a half, the 80s, 8, 1982 feels so much more like the present to me and 1966 feels like the past. Even though they were, or 67, Space is 67. So 67 and, and 82, they feel like a huge gap. It requires a little bit of mental effort for me to go, oh, that's only 15 years. That's only the distance between now and 2006, right? Which doesn't feel as long to me because I remember them both. Do you have that feeling between, say, 67 and 82? Or having been a conscious adult for both, do you not? I don't. I I never really thought about it. Like I said, you guys get into all this stuff, and I'm just going to ask questions and point out things that I want. I'm, I mean, I'm thoroughly enjoying hearing all this, but... But I'm talking about separate from the film. Separate from the film. Do you, like, is there a comparable date where you would go, oh, God, that's only 15 years, but it seems so much longer because, you know, would it be like if I were to say to you, you remember 1960, right? Mm, vaguely. I, would, I think I was still living in Arkansas at the time. 1960 and 1945. 
are 15 years apart. Does that seem like, oh, wow, I would think that's a much bigger gap to you? Our, no. Our consciences don't run in the same. <laughs> the same I think an easier way is you saying it was 15 years ago, but like the a fun game that I, I, I like to play with people is instead of saying my age, I say the year I was born because then your brain goes, <laughs> Oh God, I was like, I was doing this thing. You instead of just going, Oh, you're you're 39. If I say I was born in 1981, people will go, Oh shit, I was, <laughs> you know, in fifth grade and this and that. It it fires something different like, in, in the human brain. <clears throat> it it's a really fun job. It's a really fun game to play with people. Oh, it's like when you first started meeting people who were like born in two thousand one <sighs> or born after nine eleven, you're like, Oh, right. Yeah, okay. You see, when people say Casey's gonna turn forty and it's like no. Mm-mm. Nope. Mm-mm. Nope. 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 Mom, I hate beef. to tell you this. Two things. It's coming up quicker than you think. It's in one month and one day. But by the time this airs, I will be solidly 40. Nope. 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 <laughs> Almost 41. Nope. 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 And I'm uh, not yeah, 75 the, either. <laughs> <laughs> the one with that is uh, when I was teaching acting to high school students, we were talking about a comedy routine, and one of the kids was like, yeah, I'm really getting into old sitcoms. You know, I'm watching this old show. It's called Friends, and I wanted to be like, up your ass. It's not an old show. <laughs> it was that moment where my age really came through. I was like, right, that is an old show to you because you weren't even born when it started. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. It's, it's amazing. This scene ends with a line that is going to be repeated so many times. Logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. We go to the bridge next. Did we recognize one of the bridge crew members that's not a main cast member? Mm-mm. Nicholas Guest? No. Christopher Guest's brother? Oh, I did not recognize that. And also the schmucky, yuppie neighbors in Christmas Vacation. <laughs> and why is the carpet all wet, Todd? I don't know, Margo. Oh, no, I did not recognize him. <laughs> yes. Wait, aren't the obnoxious, yuppie neighbors in Christmas Vacation David Duchovny and... Not David Duchovny. What is the movie where David Duchovny is the obnoxious, yuppie neighbor? <sighs> We'll think of it. Uh, we will. I, I, I know. I, oh, God damn it. I know what movie you're talking about, too. No, it's Christopher Guest and uh, Julia Louise Dreyfus. My answer okay. is Google it. It's <laughs> a good answer. Hey, Mom, my next note is, why is Bones here? <laughs> I don't know. Why is Bones here? Just go with, with what you said before about... Mo- He's everywhere. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. I mean, it's just like... Nicholas Meyer has a fever. And, <laughs> and the only cure is more McCoy. <laughs> I mean, he's good. He sure is. He kind of overacted with the, with the shoulder pinch. I think that was a little... Little oh. much. Well, I, but we don't know what it feels like to get a Vulcan neck pinch. <laughs> no, but not everybody goes, you know, with their mouth wide open and everything. Most people don't do that. They just I mean, for all over. we know, you pee your pants when it happens. <laughs> Who told you that? Oh, boy. Admiral, sensors indicate a vessel in our area. Closing fast. En route, Enterprise is ambushed and crippled by Reliant. Khan offers to spare Kirk's crew if they relinquish all materials related to Genesis. Kirk instead stalls for time and remotely lowers Reliant shields, enabling a counterattack. And this is where, I mean, just so much was so little. I mean, there's it's it's two guys talking to a screen, and it the tension is fantastic. It's it's witty, it's, it's just a great sequence. We didn't haven't talked much about 
Kirstie Alley is Savick. Yes. Um, and her, uh, well, we don't need, we don't need to talk about Kirstie Alley, the person, um, <laughs> but, but You're you being know, generous with the word person. <laughs> oh, she's a person, but she's a crazy person. She's quite good in the movie. It's you know, a lot. Some people don't like Savick because she seems so unvulcan at times. Well, there's a rewrite to that, that she is half Vulcan, half Romulan. Yeah. I mean, that was a canon that was established in years of novels that, that followed up after this, that she was that, half that, Romulan. That's just excusing Kirstie Alley not understanding Vulcans. And, like, <laughs> she was so excited to get this part. Apparently, she loved Spock as a kid. She used to have the toy Spock ears, pretend she was Spock's daughter, all this stuff. And I'm like, then how do you fundamentally not understand how to play a Vulcan? Well, I mean, it's not... It's written that way, too. You know, that's Meyer coming... You know, she cries in at She the cries. Funeral. She swears. She does? She yeah. says, damn, during the Kobayashi Maru. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. If they had somehow established it in the film, it would make perfect sense that Spock would take somebody else of mixed heritage under his sure. wing. Like, that would make a, a perfect person to be his protege. Um, but they didn't, they didn't get into that. Um, you, you know, we never talked about who almost was uh, Savick. Oh, I forgot this. Kim Cattrall. Oh, was no, she? No. Yeah, that was that was Nicholas Meyer. Well, don't say no because she's going to show up as a Vulcan in another one of these movies. <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah, no. she's in. She's Lieutenant Valeris in uh, Undiscovered Country. Yeah, and she's a she's a pretty good Vulcan. I had a question about when they were speaking. He's not who he's not everything I expected. Mm-hmm. And then she, what did you expect? And she goes, "Well, he's so human." Yep. And Spock says, "Not everyone is perfect." Yeah. Is he referring to not all humans are perfect or that no one of because I always thought that Spock thought that the Vulcans were perfect. Uh, I think honestly, I think Spock is kind of making a joke. Well, yeah, that's the way it came across. Yeah. Right. But I think this is like maybe the one con- contribution kind of kept by by the series of of the motion picture is that Spock is not at war with his heritage anymore. He has accepted yeah. being both. It is what it allows him to react to somebody saying he's so human with nobody's perfect savage. And, and that's not a joke or, or a remark that the Spock of the series would have made, but he's, he's gone through something that brought him to a sense of peace with that. And it's, some of it's going to get undone and they'll have to re-explore that after he's died and resurrected. But uh, I, I, that's, I actually kind of love that moment for that. Who knows where the writing of the character ends and the, the actor's relationship to the character begins. We're talking about, you know, that there seems to be a sort of settled peace with the character in Nimoy of, well, this is it. I'm done. I'm done. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so I, is that what I'm seeing or is it, you know, so who knows, but it works. I think, I think a part of that also has to go in the hands <clears throat> of Nicholas Meyer. I mean, sure. he knows, he knows, how, I mean, we won't see anyone else direct Spock again. Uh, uh, that isn't directly related to the franchise until his move, his next movie. That's true. That's true. Next to her, Nimoy. And then we got then Chatner. Chatner. And then we get Nicholas Meyer again. So it's yeah. a really 
I love the I love the trick with the shields. I love you know it's just such a good and this is where it really starts to be a submarine movie, right? Sure does. Khan is forced to retreat and in fact repairs while Enterprise limps to regular one. Kirk McCoy and Savick beam to the station and find Terrell and Chekhov alive along with the slaughtered members of Marcus's team. That that whole sequence plays out like a horror movie and very well. Yes. Also, we spent a lot of time giving love to these uniforms. Um, I, I want to own one of these away mission jackets. So oh, yeah, bad. those are great, aren't they? Those are so bitchin'. <laughs> it's like, uh, can I be fitted for one right now, please? Yeah. How the hell did a rat get on a space station? Uh, oh, you had that too? That was one of the things. I want to go back to, and I don't know if we can do this, but I want to go back to when Scott brings his nephew up to the bridge and they show a close up of everybody's faces in horror except Spock's, and he just closes his eyes. Is he praying? It's the most emotion he can give, I think. Oh, no, I, yeah, never thought oh, of that. When he, well, yeah, I think, I think, and it's, it's interesting because he's, I mean, Nimoy is probably one of the most naturalistic of the actors in the in the Big Seven. There, mm-hmm. I mean, Nimoy, Nimoy idolized Brando. He studied the method. He's a very naturalistic and subtle actor, and it's such a subtle gesture of, of Spock. But remember, that's Scotty's nephew—a fact only established in the director's cut. Yep. But it's also that's Spock's cadet. He's That's their right. teacher. That's right. This training mission has is now getting his cadets killed. Mm-hmm. And that, that is that reaction, I think. Yeah. But again, back to mom's original question. Scotty, sickbay is down like 12 decks. What are you doing bringing him to the bridge? <laughs> is McCoy on the bridge? No. no, they go to sickbay next. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, because it. It's a great entrance because it's a great entrance. <laughs> it sure is, but it is one of those moments where where logic and yeah. uh, movie logic takes over. You know, it's that shot is in both is in both versions. Sure, and the whole the word is given is in both. But, right, but, but it's the nephew it's, part that's never. I think it's a lot more justifiable and makes more sense for Scotty to bring him to the bridge. If he's his nephew, then if he's just a random cadet, he seems to like. You say there's no logic to bring him to the bridge. People don't always display a lot of logic when their loved ones die horribly in front of them. Well, that's true. So I can see Scotty just in a daze taking him up there. That you know, it, you were talking about the uniforms. One of the nice things about these uniforms is they they can unbutton them. Mm-hmm. And the when you know the unbutton them and it heightens tension. We know things are getting serious, and you can get that great blood stain uh-huh. that Kirk Kirk doesn't even see. You know, it's the composition of it is really nice. Yeah, it's that whole section is great, but you have to forgive <clears throat> logic for a hot second for right. him bringing him to the bridge. <laughs> All right, so but if we're gonna cinema sins this right now, there are uh, there there are just a do- there are dozens of things in this that don't make a lot of sense, and I don't care. That's true. It's I'm not so saying I care, good, but but I, I guess what I'm saying it's so good I don't care. Okay, so they u- they use it's the only ship in the sector again. They sure do. The, but they're still in Earth, or they're still in, in within the uh, solar system. They haven't gone to warp. So how are they the only one in the sector? I don't care. Why didn't Terrell and and Chekhov beam up? When he first saw that it was the SS, exactly. yeah. When he said, we, we get, we have to get out of here immediately. Well, that's when you get under the transport. Right. Flip phone out and go <laughs> to the beam up. Beam me up, Scotty. You don't need to go outside. No. Right. right. Yep. No. Of course. But I don't 
care, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, because it it because it works. A punching up of the script just to give it logic. They could have tried to get a signal, and he could have said, "Damn, we can't get through." That's why they walk out. Fixes that moment a little bit. Sure, and that may have well been there. I mean, I think Meyer said that something like forty percent of the dialogue was lost in shooting, because he says, you know, the 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 rule is. If you can do it without saying it, if you can just do it visually, well, do that's it visually, true. that's, that's how you make a movie, you know. Except for one terrible bit of ADR near the end of this movie. When Spock goes into the warp core to fix it, and Scotty's... No! I didn't notice it's ADR'd. Oh my god, hey... James Doohan's mouth is not moving. And James Doohan, I imagine, was like, yeah, fine. I'll come in and say this, but I'm not sticking around very long. And he probably just walked and went, Scott, no, get out of there. <laughs> and just left. <laughs> he knew but, it was bad. But there's a million of these. The Genesis device is basically magic, right? Sure. Who cares? The whole explanation for how SETI Alpha 6 becomes SETI Alpha 5, and the, that's not how space works. It's not how plan, you know, it's not how interplanetary bodies work when they... Not, who cares? It, it's so well done. Having seen it easily 20 times, mm-hmm. not, it never bothers me. I, I recognize it, and I don't care and that's that's good filmmaking why all of a sudden are they using intercoms where they have to push a button on the wall i don't remember them ever you doing that in the original series oh de- yeah that's original series stuff oh, I missed that. oh absolutely yeah and in, in fact there's one in spacey where i noticed that mccoy just goes over and punches there's one button it's just a little like punch button. he just punches it and it goes bridge i'm like does that only it only talks to the bridge that one there's <laughs> only one button there's a lot of communicator gaffes over the years. There's one where I uh, I can't remember the episode, but Crusher goes to to say something on the bridge, and I think it's in the episode. And she goes Crusher to Crusher to Enterprise. She taps. She forgets uh, to tap her communicator before she starts talking. The thing that communicates is they they've gotten rid of the Dick Tracy wrist watches from Motion Picture, and they've gone back to the flips. Some still have the wristwatches. In fact, Kirk uses both in one scene. Oh, that's right. Well, Terrell uses it, right. And then Terrell uses it, too. But Kirk also uses it in the same scene. He's using Terrell's when he's... It's Terrell's he's talking to. Oh, right. But, but, but isn't that... It, I thought that that was something that Khan put on his wrist. It wasn't a... a, star, a I've always assumed that, too. Yeah, that it was a con. It was something con. It was, mm-hmm. He's wearing a wire, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's oh, not. That's what it's I not, thought. That's, now, it's entirely possible it's just a reused prop because, again, <laughs> a, much like a quarter of the budget. Con, you've got Genesis, but you don't have me. So let's talk about, I think, the scene Mom and I want to spend a minute on. Uh, <laughs> when Kirk is, quote, unquote, stranded on the planet, buried alive to live out his days, and we get the infamous... Con! I'm just going to drop it in, so... No, no, you will leave Mom doing it. (laughs) But I think once would have been enough. We didn't even hear it echoing through space as they... First of all, it can't echo through space. Space is a goddamn vacuum. (laughs) In space, no one can hear you scream. Yeah, but you don't mind that every starship that whooshes by whooshes. Yeah, and when it <laughs> sure, right. and phaser shots and all that. Yeah, I do mind. 
<laughs> I just don't care in, in my sci-fi. It makes no sense for him to scream. He knows the plan at this point. He knows he's going to fake Khan out. He's still trying to get Khan to come down. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. He wants him down there. He's still trying to get him to come down, and he still knows that he can. he's got to push that monomaniacal button, push the ego, push the revenge, push the ego, push the revenge. And that is how he keeps Khan off balance. It is a performance. He also doesn't like Khan and is very angry at him. So it is, it, so just as in Act 3, Scene 1 of Hamlet, Hamlet is aware that he is being spied upon from behind an heiress and therefore is putting on his antic disposition. He is also extremely agitated with his ex-girlfriend, Ophelia. So right. it, there, there are real emotions, but they are being turned up to 11. It's probably because you said Christopher Guest. <laughs> For the sake of achieving a goal via, again, acting. It's a movie about performance in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I mean, that's what I think. I still think three cons was too much. <laughs> I think one con was I don't mind enough. that. It's just the fact that if he's acting, it's the best damn performance Jim Kirk has ever given. <laughs> oh, that's not true. Kirk, I, I, no, because Kirk bluffing and acting his way out of things is a big theme in the, fir- in the series. Oh, yeah, I give planet you, with all the children. Yeah. I give you Fizbin. Um, been, or the Corbomite Maneuver. The entire plot of Corbomite Maneuver is based on the fact that he's a good bluffer. Well, that's true. Okay. I think the echoing is because we hit, we get him yelling it, we get the planet echoing, and then we get that shot of Khan leaning back in his chair, and he closes his eyes, and he smiles, and it's almost orgasmic. Like, Khan is... Now, the the echo is there to take us all the way up to Khan leaving and and connect them, kept them emotionally connected. Right. Kirk is a great actor, but also, as we learn in in this cave scene, Kirk also is a big, fat cheater. (laughs) You are looking at the only Starfleet cadet who ever beat the no-win scenario. How? I reprogrammed the simulation so it was possible to rescue the ship. What? He cheated. I changed the conditions of the test. Got a commendation for original thinking. I don't like to lose. Then you never faced that situation. Faced death. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. Kobayashi Maru. I looked it up. I'd never looked it up before. Uh, Kobayashi is a, is a common Japanese name. But Maru is, is um, a suffix that is basically the, almost like the USS and USS Enterprise. It kind of means ship. Oh, Okay. So, I never... But Japanese ships are not usually named after people. Oh, okay. But well, who knows what they do in the 23rd century? Well, yeah, of course. But so, but Kobayashi, I can't believe I never looked it up before, but that's where it came from. That yeah, actually, the name, well, the Kobayashi, that name comes through from one of those five scripts that went into a blender and got, <laughs> you know, and it, the guy who wrote it uh, had a um, neighbor named Kobayashi. <laughs> That's what it really comes down to. Wasn't that mentioned in the original series, though? No, this is the first mention of Kobayashi Maru, and this is also the first mention of Romulan Ale. Romulan Ale is never never talked about in the original series either. They do drink a blue drink when they... Uh, have a dinner for Khan in Space Seed. But it's not ever said that it's Romulan Ale. It's never said that it's Romulan Ale. So So they had the chance to not make it Powerade Blue (laughs) because it wasn't from the 66 series, and they still went with it. When we get to Undiscovered Country, I'll remind you that Nick Meyer thinks blue food is fun. Oh, there's a fun bit of uh, trivia with that. There's a lot of blue food in there. Yeah, I know. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> I, mom might not know that, but so we'll wait. We've just, we've gotten to through the scream. So let me see. Trick, trick by Kirk and Spock's coded arrangements for a rendezvous. Do we need to read that part of the sketch? The thing? No, but let's. Uh, I mean, so they trick him with something that I don't understand. How Khan didn't understand the code because Spock just says, "If we go by the book." Like Lieutenant Savick, hours could seem like days. I mean, he he spells it out, and Khan's supposed to be this incredible no. genius, and he doesn't get it. Well, neither did Savick. Remember, Khan doesn't know that they know he's listening. No, that's true. And it's the Vulcan saying it. Does Khan know what a Vulcan is? He's met Spock. Is it? Is that discussed in Space Seed? It's not discussed, but... Well, obviously he's not from Earth. Yeah. But I'm talking about the fact that everyone thinks that Vulcans can't lie. Yeah. <laughs> Which, spoiler alert, they super can. They just yeah. find ways around it all the time. Which the Savick points out. Right. By the book? By the book. Regulation 46A. If transmissions are being monitored during battle... No uncoded messages on an open channel. You lied. I exaggerated. It's a great bit. I, you know, no, I don't think, I don't, I, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't seem like, also, Khan, there's, there's this. He doesn't get the subtleties. He's too. Yeah. He's His too ego gets in the way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly uh, it. I mean, I, I perfectly, the next thing, my next note is, and it might be one of uh, William Shatner's best line readings. Khan. I'm laughing at the superior intellect. <laughs> I don't like to lose. I like that. And he takes a bite of an apple. I, yeah. I don't like losing. Yeah. A bite oh. of the apple. Where Right. In the Genesis. That it, you know, so there's a, yet another big fat old book being referenced, by the way. Yeah. That and also the movie trope of give the guy an apple to eat. He'll look like more of an asshole. I mean... <laughs> It is repeated in this franchise by the same character. Well, I think for those exact reasons. Uh, you know who we haven't mentioned, and probably because he's not listed in the credits? Joachim? Is that how you say his name? I, th- I think he says at the end, he does say his name is Joachim. Who's he? He's the the, the oh. very pretty man that's the, next to Ricardo Montalban most oh, yeah, of the I movie. Yeah, I up the actor. You know that uh, he blames his agent for the fact that he's not in there because his agent said he's either going to get this billing or he's not going to be in the credits. And they went, we're going to take the fact you said he's not going to be in the credits. I remember that now. I do remember reading that. Snipped him right out. I'm shocked that the union let that happen because he has. It's not an under five. He's a supporting character. He's the only member of Khan's crew ever speaks. Well, because the rest of Khan's crew were mostly comprised of. Chippendale dancers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought they had worms in their ear. Well, Chippendale dancers. Yeah, I know. You know what those are, Mom? Of course. I, yes. I okay. Do I just want to make are. sure. <laughs> yes. That they're on my bucket list. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> He's not a Chippendale dancer. Oh, 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 I don't feel good about that. <laughs> okay, well, I won't tell you about it when I do it. <laughs> no, his joke. You're fine. <laughs> well, let's get to the nebula. Because, I mean, this is the best scene in the movie, and also we can speed through the end of this movie pretty damn quick. Special effects were great. The Mutara Nebula, which... Oh, the Mutara uh, Nebula is fantastic. Well, but Mutara, Mutandis, uh, Latin for change, mutability, immutable, signaling that this is going to be a place that will, will change, that is about change. Yeah. 
So yeah, they're they're in the nebula. Uh, some some more damage is done to each ships. One of the things that happens is Khan launches the Genesis device to blow up because you can because part of how Genesis happens is there's an explosion. So he's going to take out the Enterprise. Um, they don't have warp drive. Spock goes down to the warp drive. He Vulcan neck pinches Bones. How does he get? Scotty not to notice what's going on. Scotty is out of it from radiation. Oh, he passes out from the radiation. Yeah, Thank you. He's leaning up against the pole. Again, remember, it was a pickup. The Spock don't is the most hilarious ADR I've ever heard in my life. Oh, the Scotties don't. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's 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 spend a minute on the scene between Kirk and Spock because while I think this is the best acting Shatner has ever done. This may be in in the Star Trek franchise. This may be the best scene William Shatner has ever done. It's a great scene. It gets me every time. I've the seen no it. is God. It gives me. And I'm getting goosebumps just just thinking about it. No, it's so good. It's beautifully shot. It's beautifully acted. It really shows he's playing the text in that you know in a future in a next scene he's going to say uh, you know, he hadn't faced death. And you really see him facing, you know, that. Right. I, I think he's also playing it. Uh, William Shatner is playing it as my friend and colleague is leaving this franchise. I'm going to follow his lead on how the scene needs to go. Mm-hmm. I really think it's one of those few times Shatner is following, not leading a scene. I have been and always shall be. Your friend. And then, of course, we have the uh, funeral scene, which, depending on my mood, uh, Chatner's reading of... Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most... human. Very touching, or kind of silly. Go back to the scene. I noticed when, after they touch hands, and Spock falls down and mm-hmm. inside... Kirk falls down and then leans up against the the, the uh, glass. Spock's head it jerks oh. to the side. I thought, no, that's, that's either awfully that. thin glass or something. And how did that keep the radiation out? Yeah, it's probably transparent aluminum. Oh, there you go, there you go. But it did. He has, it very very subtly, his head moves, and I went, oh god. Wow. Oh, but they couldn't have done that scene again. I hope they did that all in one shot because to show that much emotion over and over and over again would have been very difficult. Oh, they shot it for a few days, if I recall. Really? Um, it was near the end. It was near the end. Uh, later in one of his, in his memoir, um, Nimoy complained that Nicholas Meyer was dressed as Sherlock Holmes during it. <laughs> What? But he wasn't. He wasn't. Meyer, the way Meyer says, he says, I've never dressed as Sherlock Holmes in my life. But I had taken to going to the opera after. If I was going to go to the opera, I would be in a suit. And so he was oh. in a suit for the directing. And it, it can throw you off. All it was was that Nimoy was, you know, having to shoot what he thought was the last time he would ever play this character. And, you know, all these things. So, um there are directors that wear a suit and tie the entire directing time. Um, uh, oh, damn it. Paul Feig is one that comes to mind. Nolan does, and so does um, Sam Raimi. Sure, but they do it for every day. If Nicholas Myers picked and chose his days of wearing a suit, depending on whether or not he was going to the opera, I could see that throwing off an actor yeah. compiled with the fact that they're doing their death scene. I, I, I could see that. Now, during the funeral, Colin, anytime Amazing Grace is played, 
Does it get you a little because dad used to sing it to us before we went to bed? Yeah, I mean, and it's the bagpipes. It's the, I mean, this scene always gets me. The bagpipes don't get me. When it becomes the full orchestra, that's when I choke. The bagpipes Ooh. were a suggestion from James Doohan. But the bagpipes are also not being played by James Doohan. Because oh, no, if you look at them, the, the baffle's not... Uh, inflated yeah. enough. We didn't talk. We actually we kind of skipped Spock's death. We didn't talk about cons. No, it's so great. And yeah, that's this is a huge, huge verbatim swaths of Melville. Which I mean, you have to assume we, there were four books for fifteen years. He's probably memorized them. You know, from hell's heart, I stab at thee for hate's sake. I spit my last breath at thee. When the Enterprise goes to warp at the last second, I seem to remember Khan seeing that before it blows up. And at first, last night when I was watching this, I was like, oh, huh, that's weird. But then I was like, no, I like that. Like, in that way, maybe Khan died not realizing the Enterprise escaped. I don't know. Possible, yeah. Wasn't it unusual that both Khan and Scotty's nephew had the exact side of their face? Only half of their face was burned. The makeup department just really knew how to do that one. <laughs> big, Paramount just couldn't afford to do both Big sides. fans of Harvey Dent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I've got a question. Yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. I thought that Genesis would take a dead planet, or in this case, the nebula, and make it something alive that would live and, and have trees and stuff. But where does the sun come in? Did it create the sun also? No. Nicholas Myers really wanted some uh, sunrise and sunset shots. Well, <laughs> well you've got to have sun to, have to make for the plants to be able to thrive, don't you? Ex- yeah, right. So it would be, it, it, the idea was it would be tested on a dead world. There isn't one. It kind of creates it out of the nebula. It's it just, it's a, it's a big fudge. It's just all a big fudge. We we like to affectionately call that hand wavy. Yeah, yeah. Some nice shots with the with with the sun coming around the corner there as they they're pulling away. Oh yeah, that's a great. It's also a very fast sun because when they go to launch Spock's coffin torpedo tube, it's uh, it's setting on the left uh, on the right hemisphere. Sorry. And then as it comes around the bend and lands on the planet, it is then rising on the other side. It's like, holy crap, these are short days. That insert, the shot of um, Torpedo on the Genesis planet is Golden Gate Park. Sure is. Because it was actually just shot second unit by ILM, who are are in Northern California. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they just went out and did it. Oh, and this movie holds the distinction of being the very first movie to have fully computer-generated... Uh, rendering in it when they're showing Genesis, that's all the uh, CG, and that's the first time they ever use it. Oh, okay. When Kirk shows, tell, basically reads in Spock and and McCoy on what Genesis is, that shot of the of what the Genesis effect will do to the planet, that's the first time that kind of CGI was ever in a movie. Well, I'm so glad that Spock got in his famous one line in that scene too. It Which wouldn't one? be a Star Trek movie without fascinating. Um, actually I love that scene that's always been one of my favorite scenes in the movie and Mm -hmm. um, and it's also uh, the the workaround they could have of course had to the whole only ship in the sector thing is Kirk is the admiral in charge of that project 
Right. You know, so that comes from regular one, and that's why he has to go there. But And also, while we're nitpicking, I really enjoy that uh, Carol Marcus takes the time between when she starts the Genesis thing to when she starts talking again for someone to realize that it's Carol Marcus. Project Genesis, a proposal to the Federation. Carol Marcus. Yes. What exactly is Genesis? It's very nice of her to have that pause. Hold for applause. But but they do a subtle job yeah, of having that Carol Marcus line reading, you know, say, the girl who broke your heart. You know, like that kind of, you know, that sort uh-huh. of, that's all read in real subtly. Huh, I didn't get that impression. That, I, didn't, that, I didn't get the impression that Carol broke uh, Kirk's heart. Well, he says to, to Bones, as a physician, you should appreciate the danger of opening old wounds. I guess what, that's what I mean is it was something. It, mm-hmm. it's a, yeah. it was a serious relationship. Whether well, she I, broke his I, heart or he broke hers, it was a serious relationship. It was, you know, and that there's history there. It wasn't a one-night stand. I think she made it quite clear. You were doing your thing and I was doing mine. And you were right. never yep. going to stop doing yours. And I wasn't going to stop doing mine. And they both agreed to it. He didn't like it. And it still no. hurt, but I didn't think she broke his heart. It just it's, it's what makes the world twirl. We have different interpretations. Yeah. Well, it's what makes it also a richly rendered relationship between adults. We don't know what it is, and we aren't told in explicit detail of what it was. We're, we as an audience are invited to fill in some gaps, and the actors are, are playing a rich history. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lesser movie would have been like, who's Carol Marcus? Well, when I was at Academy, <laughs> you know, and we had one night I, I didn't wear yeah. my space condom. Well, it's established it's on Deep Space Nine, he didn't get his uh, injection of sterilization. Ooh. That's how, uh, uh, I don't want to spoil it for mom, but that's how a character becomes pregnant. Both of them have forgotten to get their sterilization shots. Ah, yes, yes, okay. Like I'm going to watch Deep Space Nine. Oh, you should, it's good. If nothing else comes out of this podcast is you watching Deep Space Nine. It's so good. Yeah, it is good. Mm. Um, All right, are we... uh, We've sort of talked through our way through the whole movie, and I... I thought that the special effects of the nebula were very, very well done. Uh Yeah, 100%. Especially when uh, the Enterprise comes up on the top. Yeah, and he's a yeah. I just thought that was so good. Yeah, the the idea that he thinks two dimensionally and you can come at him from a y axis. Oh, al- mm-hmm. also the Enterprise is coming up from the from beneath, mm-hmm. like the whale to Ahab. Uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. It's all symbolism. It's all there. I've never been able to understand. It just it goes. It's beyond my comprehension. But you get what I was saying before about it's uh, you know hard to miss. You get that this is a movie about aging and death. When you say it, yes, I understand it. But when I watched it the first and second time, that did not enter my mind that oh, this is not the whale. I mean, the the stuff about how it's about aging and death. They say that. Well, I know. <laughs> I, I mean, the very last line of the movie. How do you feel? I feel young. Uh, having previously said, you, you know, how do you feel? You ask me how I feel. There's a, there's a son out there, you know. Mm-hmm. I feel old. I feel used up. That's, that is a great 
performance, that scene where hit with him and Carol before they go into the cave. And mm-hmm. it's wonderful. That's when, you know, they're really not shooting it as like a lover's reconciliation. It almost looks like a confession. Sure does. I mean, I think this might be the best Kirk we're going to get. I'm not saying we're, we get bad Kirk in the other movies, but I think this is the, the most well-rounded showing off Shatner's uh, abilities without it being like a dog and pony show. You know, yeah. like it, it is, it is a true, here's what Shatner has to offer as a performer and an actor. I yeah. think he, he came know. across as a film actor, as mm-hmm. in the original series, he came across as a stage actor. That too, this is the most real he is. He over he mm-hmm. was so big with this one. But also we did not wish a belated happy birthday it was yesterday. Well, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be an incredibly yeah, But you're right. Yesterday yesterday was his <laughs> birthday and Stephen Sondheim's birthday. And somehow I don't understand how I lived this long without knowing they shared a birthday. <laughs> right? And also why has hasn't Shatner done more Sondheim? That's songs? true. I want I want his rendition of not getting married today. Like I'm pretty sure he's done right sending the clowns. Oh sure, sure. Who hasn't done sending the clowns? Yeah. Okay, um, so that was Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. We got some uh, questions here for us to discuss here in the ready room. Let's start with uh, Mom. Is this a good movie? Best one I've previewed so far. (laughs) It's it's up there. It is. It's a very good movie, yes. Good movie. I agree agree with everything that you guys have said about it. It, There are some things that are, you know, like, oh, I can't believe that made it through the... That they didn't see that, but yes, it's very good. It's well written, well directed. Scenery is gorgeous. Acting yeah. is good. The Nebula is breathtaking. It's a great movie. It's a, and it's a movie you can show someone who's never seen Star Trek and doesn't have a particular interest in Star Trek, and they will, at the very least, enjoy themselves for two hours. It's just mm-hmm. a, it's a True. very entertaining film. Yep, absolutely is. But is it good Star Trek? Yes. Is it good Star Trek? Yes. I'm going to say yes. yes. With the caveat that it is very good at that Horatio Hornblower naval DNA part of Star Trek, and yeah, it it's does explore it, it. It's success, like I was saying before, dragged the franchise toward that a little more than and left behind some parts of Star Trek that we would get back to with Next Generation. And but it's still it, it is good Star Trek. Yeah. It absolutely is. Would you recommend this as someone's introduction to Star Trek? 100%. I already accidentally answered this. Yeah. It's a great introduction. Yeah. But you yeah. mean before the, the original series? Sure. Sure. If you want to just go film, this is a great... I mean, uh, there are a lot of people who consider... This the beginning of the Star Trek yeah, movies. That, yeah. And mom, like you were just saying, like if somebody if you think somebody's gonna need to be eased into some of the broader acting that happens in the fir- in the series or eased into the go-go sixties feel of it. And you know, that the <laughs> this is where you might start them is you know, you don't mm-hmm. because it, it feels a little more modern. Now, it, we say that because we were <laughs> We were all alive when it was made, and we all watched it for years shortly after. We we could probably show this to, you know, like, Casey, did you try this on the bean? Didn't even bother. 
This would be considered a, a I mean, classic. It would, yeah, we, we're sitting here going, it's so much more modern than than the '60s TV series. And to her, it may just it may look like the Rosetta Stone, you know, like. <laughs> oh, uh, for for any new listeners who are not joining us from the the Superpod HeroCast, my hit podcast on the Night Shift Radio <laughs> Network, uh, my, the Bean is my. Uh, 11 soon to be 12 year old daughter who anything made past 2006 is considered a classic to her. She's even not classic in a good way. Yeah. uh, Yes. And classic is a dirty (laughs) word. It just all seems so classic, honey. I don't think you're using that word correctly. (laughs) Colin, why don't you give us a Kirk drift status update? It's interesting. You know, I mean, I, I think the presence of a son, he didn't, he, whose life he wasn't in, you know, out of wedlock, that is the kind of thing that people remember. And it contributes to this like swinging Lothario bachelor Kirk image. Uh Uh-huh. But that's not who it is. That's not what it is in the movie. The movie doesn't do that. The movie has that lovely scene. Where I did what you said. I stayed away. You know, that kind of. Right. This is the balance of that, of of action adventure, thoughtful Kirk. You know, it's not, he's, well, he never, hey, there is no fist fight or sword fight. There was apparently a sword fight with him and Khan in an early draft. Oh, good Lord, no. Well, I assume by an early draft. That means there was it was one of the like five that was created, you know. No, that that's a terrible idea. Yeah. So, you know, he it's not about him as a physical person. Yeah. He's relatively cerebral. And so I think Kirk Drift is we haven't come unmoored here. We haven't drifted into him becoming the pop culture version. Right. To the point where it could have been that, you know, he could not have known about David. Carol could have just left and she, he could have never known about David. He could have left and been like, uh, you know, I got my swing in bachelor life. I can't be tied down by a kid. It almost seems like he wants to be a father to David. It doesn't even seem like it. He says, I did what you wanted. It's right. not, I and, did what we agreed on. And he refers to it as the life he didn't live. You know, he, this is something he thinks about and, and wonders what his life would be like if he, you know, stayed. Right. Mom, what's the best moment in this movie? I hate to say it, but the best moment is the way they handle Spock's burial. I thought it just, it was just perfect the way they did it. It was so... Instead of dumping him in the ocean, they shoot him into... It was just great. I thought it was wonderful. Anything from Kirk coming down to engineering to that point, yeah. It's all just just wonderful acting from everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, originally, when Kirk was trying to get into there, they wanted uh, McCoy to say, he's dead, Jim, or some variation on that. But they were worried that people would giggle at it. It had already become like a a cultural thing. So that's mm-hmm. why it's um, that's why it's Scotty who says he's already dead. He's yeah, already dead. Yeah, which it, it hits which, so much harder. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't bother me because no, he's not a doctor, but he's an engineer. He knows how much radiation kills you, and he, he knows that that you know there's nothing that can be done. Right, and he knows that if he opens up the doors, it'll flood the whole compartment. Yeah, for me, this shoes just I agree. I mean, look, those are those are amazing. The whole ending the death, the funeral, but just to choose something different. I could choose so many because it, sure. it, every time I watch it, there's another one. But I do I do think that the um, Kirk and Carol scene is just a real highlight because it's such, it's a linchpin of, of the character's arc. Yeah. 
through the whole movie where you really see, again, to get back to it being about performance, he lets down a sort of facade of, of be of, he doesn't really share how he's feeling, how worn out, how tired. He doesn't share this midlife crisis with anyone mm-hmm. except Carol. Yeah. It's why I say it looks like a confessional because he's sharing it with her not because she's the closest person to him, but because he he thinks in a couple hours he may he may go back to never seeing her for 20 more years. Right. So he can share it with her. The other thing is it's a, such a shock to him, poor guy, that the first time he meets his son, he tries to kill him. Yeah. yeah. That's got to be rough. I mean, that, that had to have really been like, whoa. Right. And to not only learn that the reason he wants to kill him isn't just because, hey, he's some random person. He knows who Kirk is. He absolutely knows who Kirk is, you know, and that he knows that Kirk is his no, father. No, he knows who Kirk that. is. Like he, think, oh, he, he thinks not Kirk what? is there okay, to come yeah. take. He knows Kirk by name. He it's not some rando Starfleet person. It is Admiral Kirk, this hot shot that my mom used to hang around with. And he still believes that Kirk is there to take the Genesis project. At that point, absolutely. So that would be yeah. uh, bad. Uh, I'm going to start with Colin in this one because I think you're going to have a harder time. Is there anything in this movie you would cut? No. Hmm. Nothing. There's nothing I'd cut in this movie. I'd cut the terrible ADR of Scotty. Just let the scene be on its own. Uh, how about you, Mom? Do you have anything? I would not have made the scene when they, the three of them first go down to the, where they, I can't think of the name of the. the regular one. Funny look, re, yeah, regular one. I don't think it need to take that long for them to go through a sliding door, have the sliding door closed, turn around, go through another sliding door. Then there'd be a rat. I mean, they could have just, it, it was just too long. It was it's just you too long for me. It was, it's because you don't like horror movies. Yeah, it's a horror movie moment. Yeah, right. It's a perfect <laughs> tension you builder. You knew, you knew that something was going to be hanging and, and um, Bones was going to run into it. It was like, <laughs> it just had to sure. happen. But that's a, that's a good uh, horror film right there. That's Well, you know how what? I feel about horror films. Sure do. You, Casey, you were talking about possible inspiration from Empire Strikes Back. That sequence actually feels a little bit like Alien. Sure does. Yeah. Never saw Which it. Which came out, what, 77? Uh, 79, if I'm 79? not mistaken. Okay, so, so it, it was very close in the in the uh, zeitgeist at that point. So who who gets who gets the admiral pip in this movie for for you, mom? But what do you mean? Who gets the who's the best actor? Admiral status actor. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ricardo. I mean, I, I sure. You know, Kirk, James T. Kirk was, but I just thought Ricardo handled it, especially after hearing how he approached the character because he said that when he first did some scenes, he said, I looked at him and all I could see was this character on Fantasy Island. I had to really work to get him out of my system and get Khan back in. So I think he did a good job with that. That's a curse of any actor who plays a part for a long time. Mm-hmm. That he can't shake those, mm-hmm. those mannerisms, those actions that made that character that character. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Colin? For me, it and again, at least this watch through, and maybe it's because I'm now, well, cl- much closer to 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 his age than I was, you know, five six years ago. Maybe last time I watched this all the way through, um, it was Shatner as Kirk. You know, I mean, I really, I really think he does a great job with a, a, a subtle, layered performance of, of an iconic hero having a midlife crisis. Yeah, I'm going to give it to the actual admiral in the movie. 
Um, but I'm going to give a commendation to Ricardo Montalban. Yeah. Because he uh, is fantastic. But so, this, yeah. it's so tough because he's fantastic when we're when on this specific question because Montalban is fantastic, giving the performance of a lifetime. But so is William Shatner. Yeah. And we're never going to see this great a, a, a Kirk in any of the rest of these movies. Like, he's still good in the rest of these movies. He's even great in them. But this is this is perfection Kirk. Well, and some of that is is like I was saying about Spock in motion picture. He's very much the protagonist of the film. Mm-hmm. He's always sort of the protagonist. He's Kirk. It's, you know, it's about Kirk in many ways. Like, he doesn't have a journey in the first film. Nope. He doesn't change from the beginning to the end. Spock really does. So it really is a chance for the actor to shine. Here, he really does change from the beginning to the end. And so... It's and in a way that I don't know that the writing gives him that big of a, a, a meal to chew on in any of the other films. Sure. Th- this is pretty easy. I mean, the recommended episode pairing is Space Seed, yeah. right? Okay. There's no, I mean, and you know what? Um, then go watch Darmok and Jalad, or Darmok, it, because uh, God, Winfield is Paul great. Winfield is, you know, which episode we're talking about, Mom, right? No. It's the episode of. Uh, Next Generation, where Picard is, it winds up stranded on a planet with the captain of the other ship, and it's the species that they've never been able to make contact with, because even though the universal translator can translate their words, they can't, all they ever say is, like, Darmok at Jalad at Tanagra. Shaka, when, when the, the walls fell. And eventually they realize the species speaks only in reference to their mythology and these references of their their mythology communicate what they're trying to say hmm. and but so it can't be translated oh, and, they, yeah. and and it's literally just like it's like an hour of Patrick Stewart and Paul Winfield cracking that code together and learning to communicate it's like a little two-hander sci-fi play it's such a great episode and there's also a uh, knockoff predator on the planet. <laughs> oh, I forgot about the knockoff predator because it's not what's important. What's no, important it, is how great is is like what a, it's 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 a great episode. It's Enemy Mine, but with Patrick Stewart and Paul Winfield instead well, but, of Louis Gossett Jr. and oh, yeah. um, yeah. <laughs> Randy Quaid or not Randy Quaid, Dennis Quaid. <laughs> but it's also about like it's also about like how it's it's like very science fiction. It's like how would this really work? How would we how different a culture could you communicate with? How sure. different a way of communicating. So, I love that. That's a good recommended pairing, but you should also see Space Seed cuz it's really Sure. Good. Yeah, Space Seed's there, but if you really want to do a deep dive, go watch Darmok. You'll have a good time. Yeah. I, it, the great thing about it is you don't really need to know much about Next Generation. Just that Picard's the captain. Yeah. Nobody else is really important in the episode there's no b story to the episode so i think colin and i are going to put this at the same spot this is this is this is the top of the the heap this is the number one star trek movie yeah that hasn't changed as we keep watching but i you know have regarded this as the best star trek movie for years and There are differing opinions. Since I don't remember most of them, this is definitely the best one I've seen so far. <laughs> but of the two we've watched, yeah. Oh, God, yes. And literal apples and oranges going on here. <laughs> like, these are two totally different, not only feels and and uh, emotions and everything in them. They're, two, they're both sci-fi, but Star Trek The Motion Picture is hard sci-fi. This uh, is... Space this opera. Is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, space yeah. opera. Oof. 
Okay. Uh, anybody got anything else to say about this? It was fun. No, we'll I, think, I think we'll wrap it up and we'll see you next time for the search for more money. Wait, no. <laughs> Wait, that's no, Spaceballs 2. Um, that was Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan. And uh, spoiler alert, the next one is Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. So uh, anyone who's somehow stumbled upon this and is watching as we go, uh, sorry, Spock isn't dead. Um, <laughs> oh, right. You know what we didn't talk about was that it ends with uh, Nimoy doing the oh, yeah. the yeah. classic Space the Final Frontier, doing. changing a couple lines, but still saying... Yeah, but it was also done at the end instead of the beginning. Yeah. Right. Well, a, a new beginning, a new... It's, it's yeah. very yeah. Uh, symbolic, symbolic of uh, uh, regeneration. Well, actually, that was intended... To be there to give a final sign off to the character in case he wasn't coming back, you know, right? Because that the decision was only really true. They they gave themselves escape hatches because it was testing so well, and because Nimoy seemed to be warming back into playing the character. But it was only finally decided. Here's my cliffhanger. It was only finally decided. When they saw the box office grosses. Yeah, no <laughs> shit. I mean, this movie made so much money. They're like, how much do we need to give Mr. Nimoy to come back? Yeah. Um, did he direct the third one? Well, he, that's, that was his stipulation of coming back. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, he, he had, had he directed anything? Had Three Men and a Baby happened in his life yet? No, that was his directorial debut. Was Search for Spock? Yes. Holy crap. Talk about ambitious. Yeah, I mean, I think he directed some television. I think it was his feature directorial uh, director debut. Sink yeah. or swim. Holy crap. I didn't re- realize he directed Three Men in a Page. He did? Yeah. He sure did. Son of a gun. He's one of those directors that the stuff that he's directed, you just go, huh, you do not have a type. You just direct whatever movie comes your way. Okay. Yeah. So, Colin. Yes. Where can people... St- Send you priority one messages. Uh, I am available on Twitter at Roll of Colin Ryan. And I am on Twitter at Not Ryan Casey. And on Instagram at Not Dot Ryan Casey. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at Where No Mom Pod. Mom, I'm assuming we're not doing any for you. You don't, you wish to remain uh, social media anonymous. I'm not on Twitter <laughs> or Instagram. SMA. <laughs> Nobody's going to want to contact me. I have very little to say with this thing. Listen, if you do, just put it on our social media. We'll share it with our mom. Don't worry. <laughs> so thank you for listening again. We'll see you on the next episode. And good night. Do you remember the line, Mom? What, what am I? Oh, you do. Okay, go ahead. This has been and always shall be your podcast. <laughs>